Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. It is hard to believe that it has been 40 years since one of the most iconic, relived, and truly unbelievable moments in the history of college basketball took place in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It was the national championship game between the Jim Valvano coach North Carolina State Wolfpack and the University of Houston's Phi Slamma Jamma that featured future basketball Hall of Famers Clyde Drexler and Akeem Olajuwon. It is even more difficult to wrap my head around that the fact that it has been 30 years since I was in the unique position, position of attending a school that pulled off a monumental upset in the NCAA tournament. Yet, I am not alone. Hello sports fans and welcome back to this latest edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast where we discuss the best of sports from back in the day. I'm your host, Dana Augusta. I'm glad, grateful, and thankful for you taking time out of your day or evening or night to give us a listen and just a reminder, don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you hear us. Now, coming up on this edition of the program, we're going to be talking to fellow Sports History Network podcaster, the award-winning Rick Loiza, who is the host of Basketball, 101, Basketball History 101, as we dive into the NCAA tournament and the climax of that tournament was the epic national title game between Houston and North Carolina State. Later in the show, Rick and I are going to reminisce about being students at small, quote-unquote, mid-major schools that were in the NCAA tournament and pulled off bracket-busting upsets. And this is truly amazing. My alma mater, Southern University, and his, Santa Clara, not only did this the same year, but in that year of 1993, the Broncos and the running, gunning Jaguars were in the same region that march. So sit back, pump up the volume because you're going down sports memory lane with the top down on Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a proud member of the Sports History Network. At the Sports History Network, we're all about the sports yesteryear, and so we're pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings sports history to life. The Row 1 Gallery features over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, and advertisements in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. Any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. It's your choice. In the Row 1 Shop, 
You can pick from thousands of unique items that feature retro and historical backgrounds dating back to 1876. We have everything from clothing to phone cases to mugs, even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row one for access to the full row one catalog. When you buy from the gallery today, you can instantly save 15% on your purchase. All you have to do is enter the code SHN15 and your discount will be applied. That's SHN15. That's it. Simple. Save 15% off all your prints in the Row 1 Gallery. Just go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row1. And don't forget to check out all the podcasts on the Sports History Network. Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. And we're back here with this edition, this special edition of Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, which is a proud member of the Sports History Network. I'm Dana Augusta once again, and coming at you tonight is a very good friend of mine, what I call the basketball guru of the network, uh, the award-winning and up for another award host of Basketball History 101 here on the network. Here is Mr. Rick Loiza, and tonight we're going to be talking about the 40th anniversary of Five Slamma Jamma versus Jimmy V, the 1983 national championship game between North Carolina State Wolfpack and the Houston Cougars of Five Slamma Jamma. And you know the the guys on that team, Kim Olajuwon, Clyde Drexler, Benny Anders, and that, that whole gang against Jimmy V and the Cinderella team from North Carolina State. Rick, great to have you aboard once again, man. What's going on with you tonight? Oh, I'm doing well, Dana. I thank you for having me on the show. It's it's just a great time being here as always. Yeah, you. you this is your third time, I believe, that's on the show, and uh, I, I, I look I, to you. I think that's right. I look to you for for a lot of our basketball insight. And uh, I was looking on the calendar, and I noticed that this year is the 40th anniversary of one of the most one of the most iconic moments of March Madness. Whenever you think of March Madness, you think of Jim Valvano and the win that he had against North, you know, the, the win he had with North Carolina State over Houston in the 83 final. And we're going to be talking a lot about the road to the finals, how we got there and, and all of that. Yeah, I, I, this I love this game and like you said it is so iconic. I mean, anytime you talk about March Madness every year they always show that highlight of Valvano running around the court looking for somebody to hug and he can't find anybody. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's a, this is a special game. Now it, it's special for me for, for this respect. And, and, and I am not ashamed of admitting this, but that <laughs> is the last championship game, playoff game, postseason game. As a person, I cried at the end that I wasn't a part of. I was 10 years old oh, wow. in 1983 and a huge Five Slamma Jamma fan. And when Lorenzo Charles dunked it, I literally started crying in, on the living room floor of my mom's den that they lost. My <laughs> grandfather behind me was just beside himself. He couldn't believe what happened. I was in total shock and in tears afterwards because even to this day, Clyde Drexler is my all-time favorite basketball player. You know, yeah, I'm a Celtic mm -hmm. fan, but 
as a fan of an individual basketball player to this day still is to me is Clyde Drexler. And we're going to be talking about more about oh, him he, during the during this our discussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now, he was a special player. I mean, you had a lot of future NBA players. I mean, just to think, uh, Houston had two Hall of Famers with Drexler and Olajuwon. And I think at the time, Olajuwon was so young, I think it was only the fourth year of him playing basketball at all. Right. Which is incredible. Now, now let's let's start off with the University of Houston. I mean, they had mm-hmm. that team was literally loaded, and that was their second year in a row that they had made the Final Four. They had mm-hmm. made the Final Four the year before in '82 in New Orleans. You know, with against you know with the other players, the other teams that were there was Georgetown, North Carolina, and Louisville. I think it was also there, and we're mm-hmm. going to talk about more about Louisville mm-hmm. in in a minute, but. That team, and plus Guy Lewis was the coach. He was the coach for them in 68 when they lost to UCLA in the national semifinal with Elvin Hayes. So he came back. He's still looking for that elusive national title. He comes back in eighty in the 82-83 season with a loaded University of Houston team. You know, Drexler and Elijah. Let's just talk about those two to begin with, which was the hub of that team. Yeah, I mean, you had kind of inside, outside with those two players. Uh, I mean, like, and as, as I mentioned it earlier, I mean, Olajuwon, his development was, I mean, it was lightning fast. The guy went to, I think he was 17 when he attended his very first basketball practice ever, something like that, 16, 17. And by the time he's 20, he's playing for the national championship in the United States, coming all the way from, from Nigeria. And, uh, you know, Drexler, oh, he looked like a grown man in that game. That's the part that gets me. <laughs> yeah. I watch NCAA today and they're 18 year old kids you watch them back then these guys were like 21 22 year old seniors um and uh i mean just it was just so amazing to see these two because knowing what we know now about their careers and to go back and to see them even prior to their nba days and you could see it you could see that that thing that made them such special players both of them um yeah that made just the way clyde moved on the court uh it was just it was it was just beyond what the other players were doing. Um, he just was so smooth and so quick. Okay. University of Houston had other players and Drexler, everybody talks about how, how athletic <laughs> Drexler was and how, you know, how of an unstoppable force Akeem Olajuwon was, especially with the turn. He had that turnaround dream shake long before he joined the Rockets. Mm-hmm. He had that when he was at Houston, you know, but, and everybody talks about how athletic Drexler was, but as it turned out, he wasn't the most athletic player on the team. It was a guy by the name of Benny Anders, which gave teams fits on that squad. He was like the, he, he, I think they have him listed as a small, as, as a, as a shooting guard, but they used Drexler and Anders interchangeably during that time. Yeah, he was, yeah. Anders coming off the bench, filling in for Clyde. And he was, he was no joke. Um, I mean, did not have the the I mean the professional career the other guys had, but I mean you're you're talking about them strictly as college players, and that was I mean yeah that was something to have that guy coming off the bench for your team because and then because they, they never slowed down they could just keep hitting hitting at you at at with full force even with when uh, Drexler was on the bench. 
Now, Drexler, heck, was you know Drexler would come on the bench. You know, you had also had a, a dynamic point guard in Alvin Franklin. You had, you know, then you have other guys coming off the bench. Larry Meshaw, Mister Mean, I remember him as Larry Meshaw. The reason why I remember Larry Meshaw was because that he spelled the way he spelled his last name. Me being from South Louisiana, I thought he was from <laughs> South Louisiana with the X at the end and you know the mm-hmm. Creole type spelling, but he wasn't. But I thought that was pretty cool. You know, Michael Young was the power forward. You know, he was like the enforcer of that team. I mean, that team was just pretty, pretty was was really loaded. Yeah, that was. I mean, weren't they number one? They were the, the number year? one team heading into the tournament. They, I mean, it was it, okay. like they were going back and forth most of the year, from what I remember, between them and Louisville, um, being the number one team in the country. But they had overtaken Louisville. You know, toward going toward going into the tournament, going into the eight, going into the southwest southwestern conference tournament, which it was back then, I believe, and they were number one for most of the year. But it was going back and forth between them and Louisville, and I think that North Carolina had it for a little while. Yeah, but it was mainly Houston for the most for the most part that year. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Because then, because I, I remember uh, '83 was also, I think that was, if I'm not mistaken, over at Virginia. Ralph Sampson was wrapping up his career there, and I know he had an incredible career at Virginia, and he was, uh, uh, and then of course they got knocked out before the championship. Uh, but yeah, that was. I mean, you had a lot of talent all over the country that year. A lot of good, lot of good squads. And people forget that North Carolina, even though you know Worthy had left for the Lakers. Um, North Carolina was still a threat. They still had Michael Jordan. They still had Sam Perkins. Perkins uh, I think mm-hmm. Jimmy Black was still on the team. They still had Matt Doherty. They, I mean, that team was loaded. I mean, you had loaded teams all over the country vying for it. And we're going to talk about more about those the, the other two teams that were in the final, the other teams that were in the final four, you know, which incidentally enough, North Carolina State, which made the Final Four out as a surprise, but that wasn't the only surprise in that Final Four either. So we're going to, and it's another school that you think of first and foremost for football. But still, in all, Houston was the prohibitive favorite going into that, going into the tournament. Yeah, they certainly were. I mean, North in a lot of ways, I don't think North Carolina you know, on paper shouldn't have been there, but you're right. I mean, Houston was like, they were destined. I mean, yeah, they were destined to be the champions. Unfortunately, it didn't happen for them, but yeah, that's, if I was, if I could go back to 83 and, and, and going back to the beginning of the tournament, I think that's where I put my money would have been on Houston. Um, yeah. There like you said, just too many weapons, just too many weapons on that team. They finished the regular season that year at 31 and three that year they were the number one team in the midwest region they got a first round by they in the front in in the tournament first round by then they defeated maryland 60 to 50 you know and i think that was the i think that was lynn bias's freshman year i believe that might have been you know or he was right around that time there was well coach lefty drizel was the coach at maryland so you know that they were going to be a defensive oriented team and held them to 60 points then they defeated Memphis State, which was back then a tournament favorite, which was a tournament phenomenon. And but also, if you remember that game, it has it has one of the greatest dunks of all time in that game 
when Clyde Drexler dunked on, I forgot who the guy was that he dunked on, but it was, if you look back on YouTube for the Houston Memphis State game in, I think it was in Kansas City, and he just completely jumps clean over this guy and dunks it on him. And with that, when I saw that dunk right there, I think I knew you. I think you know you smiling. I, I see you smiling. I know. I think I know. I yeah. think you know what I'm talking about. That's probably one of the greatest dunks I have ever seen. Sir. Yeah, certainly. I mean, watching when when Drexler takes off. I mean, that's why they call him the glide because he takes off like the way an airplane takes off of a runway rather than like jumping kind of straight up. It just seemed like he just sort of floated off the ground and up with his knees tucked, you know, he would kind of tuck his knees up and yeah, I mean, right over that dude threw it down and I'm like, okay, this guy's going to be probably an NBA MVP someday. You know, and and he just, uh, and and imagine that's just a gift. I mean, imagine me being a 10 year old watching that. I thought that was the greatest thing I had ever seen. I thought the the dunk that Dr. J did over Michael <laughs> Cooper was the greatest thing I had ever seen. This topped it. You know, I mean, it, and the way you described it is absolutely perfect because he took off and it was like he just floated over this guy and just threw it down. And it, it, it wasn't like the hard, massive, you know, intimidating. It, it's almost like he just dropped it in. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. if you think of Clyde Drexler Duncan, you don't think of him just trying to throw it down on somebody. Everything was so smooth with him. And his, you know, with his takeoff and dunking, it, it was just so smooth and just so precise. And so, it, but it had power behind it too, but he just didn't notice it. Yeah, no, that, that, it was, I mean, no wonder, I mean, we, I, I don't know, this is, we're getting into a completely different topic here, but uh, there, I mean, there's, there's a reason why when Portland took Drexler that they felt like they were covered at the small forward position when mm-hmm. they came to 84 and uh, Michael Jordan was on the board and they're like, nah, nah, we're all set here with this, with this kid, Clyde Drexler. He's a good at the small forward. We're covered. We're going to take it. We're going to go a different position. Uh, I kind of can understand that. <laughs> he was, he was good. Uh, absolutely. They beat Memphis State. Then they try, then they knock off Villanova with Raleigh Massimino, not mm-hmm. 89-71 to advance to Albuquerque, you know, for the final four. Joining in the final four, they play Louisville, which was the number two ranked team in the country heading into the tournament. Now, I don't think they would do this today where they would have the number one and the number two teams on the same side of the bracket. But that's exactly what happened in this case when you had University of Houston playing Louisville. Yeah, they, I mean, I I did, an, uh, for my show, I did an episode where the NCAA, uh, the committee that puts together the, the tournament bracket, they actually purposely put number one and number two on opposite ends of the bracket. So uh, whoever those teams happen to be for that given year, they, they separate them in a way that the only, the only way they could meet is for the national championship. So you're right. That, that would not happen today. You had Louisville who had won the national championship to uh, three years earlier, 1980, they were making mm-hmm. their final four. They were in the final four for the third time in four years under head coach, Denny Crum. The MVP of the 80 final, uh, Daryl Griffith, wasn't on the team. He was already in the NBA with the Jazz. But you still had a very formidable team in Louisville. 
you know, hence being the number one two team in the country. And they were led by the McCray brothers out of Mount Vernon, New York, Scooter and Rodney McCray, which <laughs> was incredible. You talk about a tandem, you know, a brother, you know, a pair of brothers, Mount Vernon, New York, you know, New York City style of basketball. You also had guys like Lancaster Gordon and Milk Wagner who were incredible in their own right. And people thought that this was going to be the national championship game. Rightly so, one versus two, you would think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, DeLuga was going through a great time at that point. I got to be honest. I I used to think, I I know they're not the same guy. I used to think Rodney and Scooter were the same guy. I thought they looked so one. much alike when they were twins, but, <laughs> yeah. you know, you but, think uh, they, they were, they, it was almost like what, if you saw one, you saw the other, and vice yeah. versa. You well, know? I thought that. I but thought their, the their games were so similar. Yeah, well, I thought his, his his real name was Rodney and his nickname was Scooter. So I thought, okay, <laughs> they're talking about the same guy. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Denny Crum was a great recruiter, a great coach. They went with it. They wanted an 80. I mean, they're in there in Final Four at 83. And I think, was it 86 when they win? Yeah, the they game? won it again in 86 over Duke. So he was going to, what is that, like five out of seven, five out of eight Final Fours that, that they were there. I mean, that was a great run for Louisville. Yeah, and the, the the early '80 Louisville Cardinal teams were just—I mean, first of all, they were absolutely well coached by Denny Crum, who was a disciple of John Wooden, who was an assistant coach with John Wooden. Mm-hmm. In fact, faced John Wooden in Coach Wooden's last game in the '75 national championship game, and it was—and that '80 team. You know, winning the national championship in 1980 and then back in 82 and then back in 83. And then you went back in 86 and won it all again under Coach Crum. You hadn't seen anybody do something like that. Reminiscent of UCLA back in the 70s, but they just was a consistent Mm -hmm. winner in the early decade, in the early part of the 1980s. Yeah. And, and, and I love what you said that he, that Denny Crum was an assistant for Wooden for years. Cause when I found that out, I was like, well, that makes sense. I mean that that makes sense why they were so good for so long. I'm not that you're going to duplicate UCLA, but that might oh, be. Oh, they can. <laughs> yeah, nobody can do that. But to go, but to have the whole team turn over and you're still in the final four regularly, that's that's an incredible job. Okay, then they they play the they play the national semifinal, which a lot of people are thinking this was going to be the de facto national championship game, whoever wins wins this game will go off to Monday night and it'll be more or less a coronation for that team mm-hmm. winning the national championship. Drexler and Olajuwon each have 21 points in advance to the championship game, both of them going to the championship game. It was actually the first time University of Houston played for a national championship because they lost in the semifinals both in 68 and in 1982 they lost in the semifinals to make it to the championship game finally and people said that this was going to be this was houston showed the way college basketball was going to be played in the 21st century which was above the realm and that's exactly what happened in that game yeah they i mean they're it's my favorite they're my favorite college nickname five slamma jamma they uh they, they, I mean, they were, they were, you would want to show up before the game started for, to watch their, uh, the layup line. Cause the layup line was really, it was a dunk line. It wasn't a layup line. I mean, right. they were bringing it, they were bringing it every game to entertain the crowd. That was, yeah, they, you're right. They, I, is it one of the largest, uh, uh, point spread 
I think it's one of the biggest upsets still today based on the point spread. Right. I think it, well, I don't remember exactly what the point spread was for that game in 83, but it was, it was pretty big. Uh, and then you mm-hmm. have, I mean, you, you, you spoke on nicknames. I mean, you've got this, this, this game right here, the national semifinal, you got two great team nicknames. You have five slam and jammer for Houston and Louisville was the doctors of dunk. The doctors and, of dunk. Yeah. And that was, and, and that was both of them. And it was, you know, and basically it turned into a dunk contest, but unfortunately Louisville, I think, ran out of dunks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. That was supposed to be like a glimpse of the future. And, and, and I mean, it, it didn't quite happen that way, but those were just two good teams at the same time with a lot of offensive firepower. Now, we talked about the University of Houston, but now we're going to switch gears and talk to North Carolina mm-hmm. State, which finished the year that year at 26 and 10. Now, going into a lot of people didn't even think that they were going to make it out of the ACC tournament, much less the national championship. But, you know, talk about that NC State team. Yeah, the NC State, I mean, they, they really should not. I mean, on again, on paper, they should not have been in the national championship game. They were the sixth seed in the in the region. They uh, Virginia dominated the ACC. Right. with uh with Ralph Sampson. Yep. I mean they they were supposed to be in the championship game or at least into the final four from their region. North Carolina upsets them in the in the ACC championship to get the automatic bid. And uh yeah, and you look at the scores except for one game in the third round against Utah. If you if you take that game out, they won their other their other five games by a combined 13 points. I mean, they were just squeaking by round after round. It um it, it was uh yeah, and I don't know, I can't even think of the last time a team won the entire national championship with double digit losses. I don't that just doesn't really happen. Maybe I had to look at it, but if I had to make a guess, maybe Villanova in 85? Nova? Cuz yeah, cuz they were an 8 seed. They were they were an 8 seed. It, when when they won the national title against Georgetown, they might that might have been the last team to win a title mm-hmm. with double digit losses. You know, I would have to look that up. But you know, North Carolina, you, you know, to run first of all, in order for them to get into the tournament with that poor of a record, they had to win the ACC, which they did. Mm-hmm. You know, they beat mm-hmm. Wake Forest by one, which was. <laughs> the beginning of a trend for this team. They beat Wake Forest by one. Then they upset North Carolina in overtime, 91-84. Then they play Ralph Sampson in Virginia, who basically destroyed them in two meetings during the regular season. But somehow Virginia, somehow North Carolina State knocks off Virginia to win the ACC in Greensboro. So Right there, you come, they're coming into something of a surprise, but of course, you know, it's the tournament. It, it, it's all going to wash out, at least it would have, what a lot of people think, or at least thought back in yeah. the Oh, yeah. They, that would, but they had, and then they run it. Yeah, you're right. They run into Virginia again in the fourth round. Well, I don't know. Do you mind if we go here through the, through the order of how NC State went through? Go ahead. Um, in, in their first round, see, they, they took on Pepperdine in the first round, and Pepperdine, uh, they're no powerhouse, but they beat them in two overtimes uh, to beat them 69-67, a two-point game, two overtimes to get there. Then the second round, they beat UNLV by one, 71-70. Uh, and then I mentioned earlier, there was the one sort of a blowout game. They played Utah 
in Utah and beat right. them by 1975. Now, before you go any further, there's one something else that that, that that I noticed while doing research for this is that North Carolina State is located in Raleigh, North Carolina, or in Durham, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. One of those. They had to travel across the country, and they played in Gill Coliseum, which is on the campus of, of Oregon State University. So they had to travel cross-country to play mm-hmm. Pepperdine. Pepperdine is located in in, in in Malibu, California. So, And in UNLV, another West Coast team. So they had to deal with the travel, you know, to go clear across the country from North Carolina all the way to the corner of the United States to Corvallis to play these games. And then they beat as you say, Pepperdine in double overtime, and then they beat Utah, and then they beat UNLV by one. So there's something going on with this team at this point right now when they advance to the next round against Utah. Then, as you were pointing out, they were brought, they blew out Utah by what nineteen? <laughs> well, I don't know what happened there. You're you're back. I'm back. I'm here. Okay. Uh, from my end, it looked like you froze up. Maybe the same thing from your end. Yeah, it looked, no, the whole screen went blank. So anyway, get back to it. I, I just cut this part out. But um, <laughs> okay. you, you're saying about, about Utah and they blowing out, you you know, they're blowing out the, uh, they blew out Utah in the, in the next round and then they had to play Virginia again in the next part. Yeah, so they're now we got a rematch against Virginia. So now they're playing Virginia, uh, what for the second time in a couple of weeks. And but you're right, the travel when I, when you were mentioning about the travel, North Carolina State getting sent to the West Region, meaning they're playing their entire way through the West Coast to get to the Final Four. Uh, Pepperdine, UNLV, Utah, all Western teams, and then running into Virginia again. I mean, there's no way they beat Ralph Sampson a second time. Uh, they said if they beat him in the AC tournament, that had to have been a fluke because Virginia dominated them in the regular season. Now they're playing them again, and they get them by one point. And uh, that ended – see, am I getting my years correct? Yeah. So that ends uh, Ralph Sampson's college career, uh, and he's headed off to the NBA. And then uh, they get to the Final Four against Georgia. And I don't know a lot about Georgia, but I know they just lost Dominique Wilkins. Dominique Wilkins was a, was a rookie in the NBA, uh, so they didn't have him. But they had Vern Fleming. The team, you know, the only oh, NBA player that him. was on that Georgia team was Vern Fleming, who ended up playing with the Pacers for a long time. But yes. that was the only NBA player Georgia had, and they were a bigger Cinderella story than North Carolina State was. Mm-hmm. You know, but here's a football school, just won, just won a national championship in football a couple of years earlier. They were in the Sugar Bowl in 82. So they were a tradition, but they were a powerhouse in football. You never heard about them for basketball. And then here they are in the tournament, making it to the Final Four, no less. Yeah. Yeah, they were, that was, and you're right, and that set the thing up because it, it, it was kind of a thing where regardless of whether NC State wins or Georgia wins, that the championship, it's really, like, again, you said it's Houston and Louisville. That, that was that was the national championship. They were going to dominate whoever came out of the uh, NC State-Georgia game, uh, and, and it, that's the way it was, you know, that's the way it had been destined to go. But that's why I tell my kids all the time, I said, that's why you play the game. That's exactly why you, you never know. You know, um, they beat Georgia 67 to 60, led, you know, led by the Vern Fleming 
Georgia Bulldogs. So they end up North Carolina State playing University of Houston for the national championship, the sacrificial lamb. And one of the great quotes among the many endlessly interesting quotes from Jim Valvano throughout his coaching career and his life, one that always sticks for me whenever I think of Jim Valvano was this one. They asked him what his game plan would be against Houston heading into that game, which was on a Monday night. He said, and I think Terry Gannon was the one who said this story, which was the, the, the starting forward for NC State. And he said, if we win the toss on Monday night, we're not shooting until Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. That yeah was, they were going to hold out of that ball. They were going to hold the ball because you got to remember, this is 83. There was no shot clock in the NBA, in, the, in college basketball. So you could just hold the ball for the entire 40, for the entire, for the entirety of the game, for the entire 40 minutes of the game. You know, but of course he wasn't going to do that because he did just something for him, something very cheeky for him to say. Yeah, yeah, Valvano, he was, I don't even, and he was still a pretty young man when he coached that team. I don't, I don't even think he was forty yet. I think he was still in his thirties. Yeah, he, he was. He was relatively team. young, you know, but he was so young, and the and the press was just just ate him up. He was like the Pied Piper of Albuquerque heading into that final four. You know, you know, the press just ate up his words and he was the, like the life of the party. And that's just the way he was as a coach and as a person. He was just the life of the party. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was, a, he was a quote machine. That's why, yeah, the press loved him because he was a quote machine. Uh, he loved nothing more. And now just reading other books about Valvano, he loved nothing more at the time than to have the press gathered around him just as he's telling stories about his Italian family, stories from Iona College, stories from wherever. And yeah, that guy held court like nobody else. Now, North Carolina State, you look at that roster and you look at, and I mentioned before, Terry Gannon, who didn't play in the NBA. A lot of people know him as an as an announcer now for ABC Sports. But you had one player on the you had actually a couple players that played in the NBA, but one notable player for North Carolina State they played in the NBA, that was Thurl Bailey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember that guy. He played in the on the Utah Jazz for a long time. I think I think he got taken by Minnesota in the expansion draft or something, but I remember him in Utah. And uh, yeah, and I think he wore goggles. If I'm not mistaken, D was he one of those guys? One of the goggle? Yes, he did. He wore the goggles like, the like Kareem did. You know, he he wore <laughs> the goggles when he came into the league, and that was you know Thurl Bailey. That that was the the Jazz from the mid to late '80s when they were when they were coached by the great Frank Layden, and they were very, <laughs> they were a very entertaining team. Not as entertaining as a coach, but he was a very young John Stockton, a very young uh, Carl Malone. I think Jeff Malone was on that team. I think Blue Edwards. No, I think Blue Edwards was with the Celtics. But that in the late '80s, early '90s, Utah Jazz. They were the up and come. They weren't like the Jazz of the '90s yet, but they were up and coming. And Thurl Bailey mm-hmm. was a key piece to that Utah Jazz team during the early uh, during the late 1980s. Yeah. And in watching the game, I mean, yeah, he was he had a really great kind of a mid-range jumper from the base from the baseline area. Yeah. Just kind of maybe one one step beyond the block is where he loved to shoot it from. And yeah, he was he was solid, absolutely solid. 
you know, other, you know, then you had the dynamic backcourt, Derek Wittenberg and Sidney Lowe. And you talk about two guys that were basketball, that were pretty much like basketball synergy, those two. But mm-hmm. their personalities were completely opposite. Sidney Lowe was rather, from what I remember, Sidney Lowe was a, a guy that was really kind of quiet, kind of like try to try to blend into the background. Wittenberg, on the other hand, was basically an extension of Valvano. Not only coaching on the floor, but as well as the personality. He was the personality of the team. Uh, yeah, they were great, great guards. Wittenberg, I believe he was the leading scorer of the tournament, something like about 120-something points between all six games. But he led the tournament in scoring that year. He was their go-to guy. And, um, uh, yeah, it was the, their, their chemistry was obvious. On the court. I mean, even though they were the sixth seed, I mean, you don't get as far as they got without without good chemistry. And uh, they definitely had that in the backcourt. Um, and I think I think if if you had to look at where they got outplayed in that game. NC State between Lowe and Wittenberg outplay. Franklin and uh, Alvin Franklin and Michael Young, who were the backcourt for Houston, I think they just had kind of. More veteran leadership. I mean, these were. I mean, I know we're talking about college kids, but Lowe and Wittenberg. I, you know, where I think it was there, they were juniors and senior, juniors or seniors, and then uh, Alvin Franklin for Houston was a freshman, so he didn't have a lot of experience, and and that's where I think uh, uh, NC State gets the edge. So the game starts, okay, and the the game itself. I went back and, and watched the game, and. The one thing that really caught my eye was was the fact that NC State played with absolutely no fear in the first 20 minutes mm-hmm. of the game. You know, talk about that first half, if you could. Yeah, they came out hot. They got, he started the game, I think it was 6 nothing before Houston even scores their first point. And that that got Houston on their heels because they came out aggressive. I think Valvan, I'm assuming that Valvano's, uh, pre-game speech, something like, hey, we got nothing to lose. We're the sixth seed against the number one team in the country. Just go after it. And that that fire that I think only Valvano could give his team, yeah, they came out aggressive and uh, were attacking the rim. They started 6-0. And you could see, because I did I did the same thing. I watched the game again, getting ready for this. And and you could see the kind of the, the worry on the faces of the Houston Cougars. They were like, oh, no, this is not supposed to happen. We're not supposed to be down 6 nothing." And uh, uh, yeah, and I think they they caught Houston definitely by surprise. And then eventually they got out to something like it was like a nine, 10 point lead. I think 10 point lead at one point in the first half. And they were just taking it, taking it to Houston. And uh, it, yeah, it just it, it wasn't supposed to be happening, but it was happening. And and uh, Houston was having a hard time recovering mentally from from basically they got punched in the you know, NC State. They punched Houston in the mouth to start the game and Houston wasn't sure what to do. Another thing that happened in the first half that really hampered the University of Houston, and it's something that never really happened with them, but they had to deal with something that they didn't necessarily deal with. And I think Gary Bender or or the guys that were calling the game, Gary Bender and Billy Packer, noticed this. Clyde Drexler gets four fouls in the first half. That really Mm. curtailed. And and this fourth foul would probably want to – one of the more controversial moments of the game when he when he drew an offensive or Terry Gannon drew an offensive foul on him to get his fourth, you know, and that really hampered the University of Houston. 
to me, it looked like Gannon was still moving. I, I, it didn't look to me like Gannon had his feet set. And you're right. So to get his fourth before halftime was, uh, yeah, that, what do you, how do you even handle that? And to me, it looked to me when, with the first three fouls were, were fouls from the defensive end. It just looked to me like Clyde Drexler was just trying to do too much defensively, a little too aggressive. There's one, I think the third foul he got, rather than just keeping his hand straight up, he 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 kind of he slapped. I forget who was shooting. He slapped him across the wrist as he was taking the shot, and just like, man, Clyde, just keep your hand straight up. You would have been fine. Um, I, I think he was just. I think he just wanted it. I don't want to say he wanted it too much. That there's no such thing as. Okay, they that, ran that off. I think the first ten points of the second half, ten or twelve points that Houston ran off with Drexler on the bench. So that was, I mean, obviously the adjustments were. He was like, let's just go to Akeem. And I mean, when I look back at the at the final at the box score, I, I, in the end, Akeem Olajuwon scored more points than the other four starters for Houston combined, and uh, that that was surprising for me as I was walking through or looking through the box score uh, for this game. It just uh, it was just so heavy. It's, it was it was Olajuwon heavy, which it had to be uh, to keep themselves into that game. Now, when you now Olajuwon had was in the second half carried the load for the University of Houston. But what but really it was another thing that was really hampering Olajuwon, and that was the altitude of of of, of Albuquerque. Because mm-hmm. he had to get oxygen every time doing every stop, every you know, every timeout, a television timeout. He had to you saw him on the sideline getting oxygen. Yeah, I didn't realize that Albuquerque uh Albuquerque Albuquerque's altitude was that I've been through Albuquerque, but of course I've been through as a tourist, not, not as a basketball player, but I didn't realize the air was that thin, but you're right. There was one point in the second half where you could see the co- coach of for Houston. He could see Elijah one struggling to catch his breath. So he told the guards just to like, just hold the ball. Like don't run the offense and just let's, let's give Elijah one like, like 10 seconds here to catch his breath. Of course, eventually Elijah one needs to come out and you're right. He was sucking on that oxygen mask to get ready to, to get back into the game. Okay. Fast forward to the final minute of the game. Mm-hmm. Houston's up by one, if I'm not mistaken. No, no, it's tie game. Uh, Houston, Houston and NC State tied at 52. Valvano says, we're going to hold for the last shot. Okay. Then everything's all set up for pretty much one of the greatest single plays in the history of college basketball, one of the most memorable plays in college basketball. Kind of like walkers through that finals, those, those final seconds of the national championship game from 83. Sure. So they come out of that timeout. You're right. Uh, Valvano says let's hold for the last shot. Houston, Guy Lewis threw something different at him because that whole game, Houston had been playing man-to-man. Now they come out in a zone trap. And uh, knowing that North Carolina State was going to probably try to hold the ball, they wanted to trap the uh, the ball handler. And so uh, NC State, whose intention was just to pass the ball around until they got down to the last you know, eight or 10 seconds. Now they're passing the ball because they're getting trapped. They're, they're moving the ball to try to keep, maintain possession. And the ball is just swinging around at, at one point, right before that last shot, Thurl Bailey has the, the ball in the corner and he could kind of freaks out a little bit. He throws a very hard pass uh, uh, toward, toward center court that almost got stolen. It nearly got stolen. And then uh, um, I think it was, I think it was Wittenberg who caught it 
uh, turns. And of course, now there's like two seconds on the clock. He's about what, eight feet, five feet, maybe behind the three point line and, and just has to launch because otherwise they're going to end up just running out of time and going to overtime. So he launches. The shot is so off. It's so <laughs> off. And of course, and the ball falls right. Lorenzo Charles catches that ball just under the rim and uh, in one motion goes up and dunks it. Uh, for the, for the victory, and I and I forgot at this that, that this is the way college basketball used to be. The clock did not stop after a made basket. That's true. So when he dunks it, there's there's actually like the the clock technically still said two, and it was ju- as the ball was going through, it's kind of counting down to one, and it's not stopping. And uh, Houston couldn't even get the ball in. I mean, today that clock would have stopped, and Houston would have had like a second and a half to try to do something. Uh, but not back then. They just the the clock ran out. The what everybody char uh, they charged onto the court and. Um, Valvano looking for I someone think, to yeah. hug, you know, and, and all of that. <laughs> yeah, was looking for somebody to hug. The players are hugging each other. The cheerleaders are hugging each other. Parents you know, are hugging each other. Some ten-year-old up in Louisiana <laughs> crying his eyes out. So they- <laughs> well, you had good company because if you go back and you watch that video, a lot of the, the the Houston players, the ones that were sitting on the bench, just kind of fell off their chairs as they realized what had just happened. They fell off their chairs. They're crying. I can't remember which player this was. He's literally pounding the court with his fist because he can't believe what just happened. And as the cameras are catching the the Houston players on the bench, I mean, as they realize the camera's on them, they turn their head because they can't, they they don't want to see the camera. They, they're looking away. They're putting towels over their heads. They're right. Uh, I, I felt, I, I felt bad for those guys. That was, that's a tough way to lose. And now one of the great, I guess you could call it an urban myth uh, of that play. A lot of people think Derek Wittenberg hit the shot because the reason why was because that that was the last thing that Gary Bender, who called the game for CBS, was saying when the ball went through. And it wasn't Derek Wittenberg. It was actually Lorenzo mm-hmm. Charles. That, that, you know, you hit Derek Wittenberg, you know, and, and everybody thinks it's Lorenzo, but it was actually Lorenzo Charles who actually hit the, who actually made the dunk, and which was one of the great ironies of sport. Five Slammer Jamma loses the national championship on a dunk, which is also which is one of the great ironies in, uh, uh, of college basketball. We at the Sports History Network are thrilled to work with our sponsors and partners. With their support, we are able to produce great content for you. The other cool thing is most of our sponsors and partners offer discounts to pass along to our fans. So if you go to the sportshistorynetwork.com slash sponsors page, you'll find Row 1, Royal Retros, Play Classic, Thrive Fantasy, and Mega Seats. All of these offer great discounts. Specifically at Row 1, you can save 15% at the Row 1 Gallery with the code SHN. The Row 1 Gallery includes over 5,200 reproduced sports history prints on a variety of sizes of wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. The Row 1 Shop also has thousands of more unique items with retro and historical designs dating back to 1876 including t-shirts and long sleeve shirts, phone cases and mugs, blankets and pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. With Royal Retros, they're the king of throwbacks. They've got jerseys, shirts, hats, collectibles, and more from defunct leagues and other teams in those leagues. 
From Play Classic Games, it's Sports Simulation Board Games. Just use the code SHN for 10% off your first order. From Thrive Fantasy, it's a daily fantasy sports and esports app for player props. Use the promo code SHN for instant 100% match up to 100 bucks. And with Mega Seats, they're tickets with no fees. You can save up to 10% with the code SHN. So check them out on the SportsHistoryNetwork.com sponsors page. That's SportsHistoryNetwork.com slash sponsors. The soundtrack is provided by Kevin McLeod of FilmMusic.io. And ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, which is a proud member of the Sports History Network. And right now, in this special March Madness edition of the show, we're going to take a little journey back down memory lane and do a little personal retrospective with my main man, Rick Loiza, the host of Basketball History 101 here on the network. And... It was a very interesting thing that I discovered whenever we, whenever I did my research was the fact that Rick Loiza and myself had something very interesting in common. And that one thing that we do have in common is the fact that he and I both attended schools that pulled off major upsets in the history of college basketball, in the history of the NCAA tournament. Not only that, it happened in the same year and even more unbelievably, in the same part of the bracket, his alma mater, South Santa Clara University, with the great Steve Nash, pulled off the upset by beating number two Arizona in the 93 NCAA tournament. The very next day, March 19th, 1993, my alma mater, Southern University, knocked off Georgia Tech in Tucson, Arizona for their first ever tournament victory. So, and this happened within the same region, within 24 hours of each other, and two members and two proud graduates of those two wonderful universities are talking right now about those two wonderful memories that we both have. Rick, thank you for joining me once again. Oh, thank you, Dana. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, from my perspective, I, I'm, first of all, I'm going to let you go first, because mine has okay. a little bit of a backstory with this, but I think that you, you'll enjoy this as well. Talk about Santa Clara, the Broncos. They had a freshman point guard by the name of Steve Nash, which you, you may have heard of, but, they, but he wasn't the main <laughs> cog of that Broncos team. Talk about who was really the, the, who was really the main piece of that Santa Clara Broncos team. Well, sure. Now we're talking about a Steve Nash that was on nobody's radar. He's a freshman coming from Canada. Nobody had heard of him. Nobody had recruited him. Santa Clara decided to bring him in as a, as part of a, uh, actually a rather large freshman class. Seven freshmen came in and honestly, Nash was just one out of seven new freshmen. Nobody knew that this guy was going to be who he became. And he wasn't the starting point. He was a point guard, but he was the backup. He came off the bench his freshman year for John Woolery, who was a junior. He was the, he had been the uh, second year as a starting point guard. 
Uh, and it was uh, it was an incredible time. It was my freshman year as a student. I was just a regular student there uh, at Santa Clara and watching watching our team make it to the NCAA tournament. Just to get there, we had to upset the University of San Francisco in our conference tournament to get the automatic bid or else there's no way we're there without the automatic bid. Uh, but Nash did play 30 minutes of that game off the bench. So he kind of functioned like the sixth man, so to speak, uh, to come in for, for at the time was first year coach Dick Davey. He had been an assistant at Santa Clara for years, but it was his first year as the, as the head man. Um, yeah. And I remember sitting around a bunch of us were sitting in the lounge in the dorm watching selection Sunday. Now we knew we were in it. So we weren't, we weren't waiting, like seeing if we got in, we knew we were in, we were just waiting to find out who we were going to play. And it was the selection show was nearly finished. And we still hadn't heard our name. And then at the very end, we hear, you know, number two, Arizona will take on number 15 seed Santa Clara University. And there was a groan in the room like (laughs) number two, Arizona. That's who we've got to play. It's like we have no chance. And and when I looked at it, I went back and I looked at the at the the game in the box score. All five starters for Arizona eventually played in the NBA including yes. two of the and then two of the, and then two of their bench players also made the NBA for Santa Clara it was just Steve Nash was our only future NBA player and he was still a freshman coming off the bench still just still developing uh and and somehow we did it we had nothing to lose is what it was and I, I wish I could say I watched it on campus with a bunch of other students actually I wish I could say I went all the way to uh to Utah to watch the game but it was spring break I was at home watching it in my living room by myself, but I could not believe what I was seeing. Uh, And just to be part of that, to be part of the school that was making a Cinderella run the way they did. I mean, we, yeah, and we got them. The incredible thing about it is we had a 12 point lead at one point in the game, we're up 33 to 21. And then for the next like 12, 13 minutes of game time, Arizona went on a 25 point run, 25 to nothing run on us. And now they're up by 13. We get it back together. We are able to score. Arizona started getting into foul trouble. We, we, fortunately, we were able to take advantage of foul trouble. But to get back to your original question about like who was the main guy, we had a, a six foot nine forward by the name of Pete Eisenrich. And he was our he was our main guy. He scored 19 in that game. He was like a like a 16, 17 point per game score the whole the whole year. Uh, so you had Eisenrich uh, uh, as our leading scorer. John Woolery is our main assist guy. Uh, we had Dwayne Lewis, who was considered our best athlete. He was a senior. He was our best athlete. Um, and he, he kind of played kind of a kind of a wing type type player. Um, and uh, uh, and, we, and then another another senior, Mark Schmitz, who was kind of our like our shooting guard. Uh, so he was Mister Outside. Um, I mean, none of these guys you don't know about any of these guys because none of them made the NBA. But uh, for a mid major, I mean, these were our guys. These were the guys that carried us. And, and you, and you and Santa Clara, you know, y'all knocked off San Francisco. Was that the West Coast Conference? back then or we are in the yes we are in the west coast conference which of course has been dominated by gonzaga for the last almost 30 years uh but so yeah that's the say, conference we're in so you could probably say santa clara that year was in gonzaga of the, the, the of the college basketball world at that time <laughs> for that year we you were know? Yeah. And you, you mentioned that arizona had nba players i mean you had chris mills 
Yeah, Khalid Reeves. You had Damon mm-hmm. Stoudemire, just to name just three of them, and they were they were they were the number two seed in that in that region. Okay, which was impressive. Lute Olson. That was another coach that was just trying to make. For what I remember, Lute Olson. You know, with you know with that team, they've always was one of those teams that would make it to the Final Four or the Elite Eight. They would always get far, but could never get over the hump. They didn't get there until '97 mm-hmm. with a team that no one predicted to do anything. But mm-hmm. that's just how it was. I mean, he had powerhouses at Arizona during that time. Oh, absolutely. And you and you're right. Damon Stoudemire, Khalid Reeves, Chris Mills, those are the three main guys. And they also had Ed Stokes, who was a senior, was going to play in the NBA the following year. Their other guy was Ray O's, also played briefly in the NBA. Reggie Geary was a freshman, played briefly in the NBA. And and uh yeah, they, they were just loaded all over the place. I mean, how when you're a mid-major, you're taking on a team with seven future NBA players. Uh, it, it, we just <laughs> I just didn't expect I didn't expect us to get that second game, that's for sure. And then you guys play in the second game. Now who did y'all play in the game afterwards? Oh yeah. In the second round, we play Temple University. They Don beat Chaney. us by eleven. <laughs> yes, Don Cheney leading that squad. And in that game, uh Aaron McKee, if you remember Aaron, Aaron McKee in the NBA, he, had, he scored twenty five. Rick Brunson, that's Jalen Brunson. Jalen dad. Brunson's dad. Uh, yep. he, yeah, he scored 20, and then Eddie Jones chipped in 17. So those three guys by themselves outscored Santa Clara. With you, at least with, with, with uh, Santa Clara losing, they lost to Temple. Us, mm-hmm. we lost to George Washington. Now let me get to, to, to Southern University. This was the first time since the late 90s that, I mean, since the late 80s that we had made it to the tournament. It was Southern University. They were the highest scoring team in the country that year. They averaged 97 points per game, Mm. which was impressive. I really didn't know it at the time, but because I was too busy going to games and trying to get phone numbers, but that's another story for another day. They led the nation in scoring with 97 points per game and no one on the team made it to the NBA. Yeah, that were, were what were they? Uh, they called you guys the running, the running gun and Jaguars, the running gun and Jaguars. And I know this was now three years later in 95 Santa Clara place Southern. I think you had already graduated. But it was my senior year, and I was one of the broadcasters for Santa Clara on Santa Clara Radio. Uh, and so I was on the microphone on the night that Santa Clara, we hosted Southern. They were coming in, the running, gunning Jaguars. And I think in that game, it was something like, I think we, it was like 98, we won like 98 to 57. And we only averaged like 55 points a game. And so I knew the running, gunning Jaguars. I'm like, oh, we're going to. We're going to put up some new, some, some big numbers in this game. And we had 98 that night. It was, uh, um, again, that was a little, like a year, I think a year or two after your time at Southern. But, uh, but yeah, I remember we played them. Ben Job was the head coach for Southern. And he, in Southern that day, March 19th, 1993, plays Georgia Tech with Bobby Cremens. 
Bam, Job, Coach Job and Bobby Kremens actually coached together at the University of South Carolina in the 70s. They were both mm. assistant coaches under Frank McGuire. And Kremens had been knowing Coach Job for years. And if you know anything about Ben Job, he probably had the greatest wardrobe for a coach you could ever see. This guy could have been a model for GQ magazine with the great with with the with the type of outfits that he would wear, the suits that you know I mean just just he looked like he stepped out of the pages of a GQ magazine with the, the type of suits that he had. Okay. Then we win the swag tournament title, you know, and then we get the word that we're going to be playing Georgia Tech and of all places, Tucson, Arizona. I don't mm. think anybody on the team had been any further than Houston in their life, <laughs> to be completely honest. <laughs> From my personal perspective, the only thing, the one of the, and I would take this memory with me till the day I die. And this is one of the great memories of my life. But the one thing that I always remember about that game was the morning of the game. It was on a Friday afternoon. They had canceled classes at 12 o'clock. So there were no classes. We, we, we were still in school. We, was, we weren't on spring break yet. I think spring break was the following week or something like that. But, or the week later or whatever. But we were still on campus. And I remember one of my friends who lived in a dorm, I was living on campus at the time, one of my friends from Washington, D.C. named Terrence Tompkins. I guess for that game, he became Southern Superfan. Because it's like mm-hmm. nine o'clock in the morning and he's walking up and down the dorm in full Southern University regalia. You know, it's just ready to go, you know, for, for the game. They're gonna have a watch party on campus at the brand new, newly remodeled Smith Brown Memorial Student Union Cotillion Ballroom. Now you gotta understand this is a brand new they just remodeled the, the student union. There's going to be a watch party at the Cotillion Ballroom. And we get there to watch the game, and maybe 10 people show up. There's like about 10 or 15 people there. Having 10 people in that ballroom is like having 2,000 people in the Superdome. I mean, it's really like no one's there. You know, and I'm like, where is everybody? So game starts. We And, of course, I'm thinking to myself, we're about to get blasted. So I don't want to be here too, too long. But Southern hangs around. They're hanging around. It was 44 to 39 at the half. Okay. And like, we're only down five. We're hanging around with these people. By this time, I turn around and I notice there's a buzz in the crowd. I turn around. There are like 100 people here. Like, where did all these people come from? <laughs> you know? And the second half comes, the second half starts. We outscored Georgia Tech 54 to 34 in the second half. We ended up winning 93 78 for the first time. We win a game in the tournament. People were so beside themselves. We had the news crews from Baton Rouge all over came to the campus to interview people, to take part of the celebration and everything. And that's when one of my friends said that LSU now stands for love Southern university and stuff like that. We were just, (laughs) we were just so beside ourselves. And like I said, no one on our team ever played in the NBA. Our main guy was Javon scales. 
who was basically kind of like a poor man's version of Sean Kemp. You know, this guy was incredibly athletic, 27 points, 20, you know, 27 points and 18 rebounds in this game. You know, so he was just manhandling. And the way that Southern played that game was essentially up-tempo, something that Georgia Tech was not used to. Um, so, I mean, and, of course, Georgia Tech had two NBA players as well. They had Drew Barry, you know, the son of Rick Barry, and you also had Travis Best, who later played in with the Pacers and led them through the NBA Finals one year, if I'm not mistaken. You know, I think it was that Pacers team in the late 90s, early 2000s, they played the Lakers in the Finals in 2000, or was it 99? Yes, 2000. 2000, we played the uh, uh, Pacers. And, um, yeah, it was it was like one of those – and, and I mean – we had Javon Scales. We had another guy named Vincent Jumby Jones, who was our point guard, which was our backup point guard. He was only like five six or five seven, but he had like a forty four inch vertical. So he had a, he pulled off a couple of dunks in that game, from what I remember. Um, but Georgia Tech had Malcolm Mackey. He had twenty seven. James Forrest had twenty four. They had won the ACC championship. So I'm walking into that Cotillion Ballroom, thinking to myself. We're about to get blasted, dude. I just have a feeling. But to my Jags credit, to those running gunning Jaguars, they didn't re- they didn't quite get to their ninety seven or ninety ninety seven point total, but they came close to scoring ninety three. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's big. In co- anything in the nineties, that's big in college. You know, and, and and they have a banner in the activities in the FG Croc Activity Center at Southern still to this day with the banner 1992-93 Southern University and the NCAA's highest scoring team or something like that or scoring champ or something like that still hanging up in the rafters. So that's pretty cool. That's the and winning the swag and winning a tournament game. I think they have they just made banners for that too. I haven't been really back since. You know, just for a couple of times, but it was like years ago since I've been there, since I've just been way since before. I've been living in Atlanta for 10 years now. So it's been a while since I've been back on campus. But that's the one thing that I always take away from that. Yeah. Yeah, that was, I mean, Santa Clara does not go to the NCAA tournament often. In fact, we haven't been back to the tournament since Steve Nash graduated in 96. So we're on, what is this? Uh, 27 years in a row without getting into the into the big dance uh uh, didn't go very often but we went three out of the four years that nash was there we made it his freshman year which is same as same as me i was a freshman the same year he was a freshman so freshman year junior year and senior year we make it to the tournament uh you know freshman year we won the first game got a lot knocked down the second game Senior year, we did the same thing. We we beat the we won, <clears throat> we beat Maryland in the first round, and then lost to Kansas in the second round. And then that was that was a uh, uh, Steve Nash's end of his career. But this is so much fun to to go back in, in the in the years and, <laughs> and talk about not only you know talk about this great great your your recollection as well as my recollection of. Um, of Southern University and the Santa Clara Broncos. I mean, that's, you know, and you mentioned the fact that we did play 
each other some, a couple of years later. And, and of course, we got spanked, but uh, I'm not going to go into that too, too much <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a proud Southern University graduate. But Rick, thank you once again for having, for, for coming on to share your, this is to, to, to share your experiences at Santa Clara, watching Rick, watching Steve Nash, you know, watching your Broncos. And I'm glad you were able to, I was able to indulge you with my recollections of Southern. So mm-hmm. glad to have you on, man. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. I mean, these are great memories. That's one of the reasons I went, I went to Santa Clara was I wanted to have that division one experience of watching my team's, you know, play other big name schools. And uh, yeah, those are definitely some of my best basketball memories. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. I really, really appreciate it. Yep. Thank you. And ladies and gentlemen, that will do it for this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. Thank you for listening. And as a reminder, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you can get new episodes whenever they are released. And also, please check us out on Twitter at HistoricallySP2, where you can get your daily dose of sports history. And you could also drop us a line or two at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. I would like to once again thank Mr. Rick Loiza, our award-winning podcaster here at the Sports History Network, for coming on the show to share his vast hoops knowledge with us. And if you haven't subscribed already, please do. Tell your family, tell a neighbor, tell a friend, even tell a passerby on the street about us. I would really, really appreciate it. Until next time, I'm Dana Augusta from the suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia, saying so long. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.